There's certainly a lot to do in this space in terms of developing infrastructure that addresses low carbon outcomes, whether that's renewable energy capacity scale up, or whether it's the shift in terms of transport systems and, and how we can actually deliver that low carbon outcome. This is Net Zero, a podcast by the Florence School of Regulation about the energy transition and climate change. I am Joana Freitas, and in this series, I'm inviting myself into the minds of some truly insightful people with very different perspectives. We will be discussing what is happening across Europe, what are the challenges for utilities, what will be the benefits for the environment, and ultimately for citizens. Today, we are joined by Zoe Knight, Managing Director of HSBC, where she leads the HSBC Center of Sustainable Finance. Zoe, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joanna. The financial sector's role in the global response to climate change will entail not only accelerating low carbon investments, but also supporting the transition of carbon intensive sectors. Let's start with green investors, such as renewable power generation and electrical vehicles. Here, it seems that investors' appetite for projects often exceeds the volume of investment opportunities. Although clean energy investment has been growing rapidly, increasing from about $60 billion in 2004 to around $350 billion in 2018, the IPPC estimates that it would need to increase by a factor of six by 2050 compared to 2015 to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. According to the CEO of Macquarie, the biggest challenge to mobilizing climate finance is not the availability of capital, but the lack of a sufficiently strong pipeline of investable projects. So, Zoe, I'd like to start um, understanding, uh, from your perspective, why are there not enough investment opportunities and what are the key bottlenecks? Um, and also, what can the financial sector and policymakers do to increase this pipeline of investable green projects? Thank you. Well, there's certainly a lot to do in this space in terms of developing infrastructure that addresses low carbon outcomes, whether that's renewable energy capacity scale up or whether it's the shift in terms of transport systems and, and how we can actually deliver that low carbon outcome. In terms of the investment opportunity side, there's a variety of reasons why they're not coming to the surface and they really all boil down to one factor, which is the enabling environment. Now, by the enabling environment, I mean both the usual things that investors look like, look at, like political appetite for investment or political background, the economic environment, but particularly in relation to climate, the risk assessment for how strong the investment will uh, contribute to solving climate goals isn't truly reflected as yet. So the financial sector can do more about uh, thinking about thinking about climate risk assessment uh, and the positives in relation to renewables in terms of how they reduce emissions uh, and how that resilience can be built into the economy by driving this this economic development through low, low carbon approach. In terms of more, what more can the financial sector do, I think it's a lot about surfacing and providing transparency 
around success stories. So, for example, where countries have delivered innovative financing structures to scale up, for example, on-site power generation from renewables or liberalisation of energy policy so that consumers can get a bit more involved by putting solar panels on their houses, for example. Showcasing those types of best practices will really help translate uh, across countries and across environments so that financiers can better understand what will work effectively. Right. So uh, we will get back to uh, two points you mentioned, um, climate risk assessment and greater transparency provided by the financial sector. Um, I wanted to turn our attention now to um, how the financial sector can support the transition of carbon intensive sectors. So not just investing in green new investments, but also supporting this this transition, which is um, going to be very significant. Um, what we've seen is that unlike renewable energy um, generation and electric vehicles, these hard to abate sectors uh, still attract limited uh, investment. Uh, they include heavy industry, heavy duty transport and agriculture, um, and they account for a very significant um, share of the green, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we also see that in some cases, uh, the solutions uh, to decarbonize are technically feasible, but not economically viable yet. Um, what incentives, programs or financial instruments could help the decarbonization of, of these sectors, in your view? Well, this really is the nub of what investors are looking at at the moment. Investors have got now a relatively long history of thinking about pure green, but actually, in reality, emission reduction isn't moving fast enough to just focus purely on the shift in power to renewables. So these hard to abate sectors are really where we're going to accelerate change. But they're an area that people haven't really had to think about as much in terms of transparency of what the transition plan really looks like. And this is where investors are a little bit uh, uh, unstuck in terms of what to do. So what we really need for this is clear roadmaps across hard to abate sectors. So in the steel industry, cement industry, um, cross shipping, aviation, what does a good climate plan really look like? Is it the use of hydrogen? How does carbon capture and storage fit in? And providing transparency around that credibility of shift is really important. So governments can help with this by providing and supporting areas like the EU taxonomy, which sets out a classification system for activities that are related to driving down emissions and generating a circular economy. And so that's helpful, but also the likes of financial instruments in terms of providing transparency. So we have already got green bonds. We're looking more closely now at sustainability linked and transition bonds, whereby the metrics that generate the, the sort of the, the cost of capital are dependent on a, a particular issue. Now, that might be carbon reduction, or it might be energy efficiency, or it might be a shift in the business model. So there are a variety of things that the financial system is looking at, but we really have got quite a lot more work to do in terms of working out the best pathway forward for these sorts of sectors. And the more that companies themselves can do to demonstrate how they're thinking about this, what their own climate strategy is, 
what their pathway and metrics are and how they, they want the financial market to look at their change, then, then the better we'll all be in terms of speeding up that change. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um, um, discuss a little bit um, also the role of finance in, in climate adaptation. Um, according to the Climate Finance Landscape Report, only around 5% of climate finance volumes in 2017-18 were directed to climate adaptation. Um, why, why is this the case in, in your view? Mm-hmm. Again, this is, a, this is another tricky one. So it always surprises me how fast investors have moved, yet how slow at the same time. And what I mean by that is that the solution for climate change was heavily focused on reducing emissions, the mitigation side. And partly, historically, the adaptation side was less looked at because we all believed that we would be able to solve the challenge, right? We believed 20 years ago that we would be able to get emissions under control and that we would stay under that two degree limit. But we haven't really managed to do that. So now adaptation has become much more in focus because we're seeing the effects of intensified heat waves and uh, droughts and floods. So the impacts of warmer temperatures are with us now. And so adaptation and resilience is becoming a much greater focus. And I think the likes of the Adaptation Commission that has been set up by a coalition of of finance organizations and and government stakeholders and others are working on on how to drive this forward. Why has it been so slow to? It's partly because of that lack of uh, emphasis and partly because it's really difficult. It's really difficult to figure out the investment return and risk profile of natural sea defenses, for instance, in the case of mangroves and, and natural capital versus a concrete wall sea defense, which nobody really wants at the end of a coastline. So it's it's a really emerging field, which I suspect will move quite quickly as resilience gets much higher up the agenda in advance of COP26 in November this year. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned before the role of, um, of green bonds. Um, in terms of uh, financial instruments that support this this transition, um, although investors' interest in green financial products has been growing quickly uh, in the last few years, it remains quite concentrated on on tightly defined green bonds. Um, in twenty eighteen, the issuance issuance of green bonds re- reached one hundred and seventy seven billion dollars, compared with less than one billion in two thousand and nine, which is a significant increase, but. Um, 177 billion is still a small portion of the global corporate bond market. Um, do you expect green bonds to become mainstream in the, glo- in the global bond market? And, and if so, uh, when? Well, I, in advance of talking to you this morning, I, I thought I'd have a, a, a revisiting, uh, I'd revisit the markets for green instruments. So I've actually got some updated numbers for our audience this morning. And actually in 2020, we had 445 billion of issuance. Now that is across green, social and sustainable. So last year in 2020, the social aspect of, of social bonds in response to the COVID crisis were um, significant. 
But even so, that 445 billion number only represents 5% of the market. And in terms of when it becomes mainstream, we there are several factors. So green bonds work by uh, by taking the use of proceeds uh, as an indicator of of the greenness. So they're essentially a labelled product. They they allow investors to be really clear on on what the the proceeds are going to be put to work on in terms of investment profile. Now, essentially, that's a transparency mechanism. So the more transparent that finance becomes across all use of proceeds, the, the, the better the market gets at assessing risk. So there's plenty of work to do from this labelled finance aspect because we need to drive so much capital towards low carbon outcomes. So in the financial system as a whole, to get better at aligning our financing with, with that net zero goal, we need transparency on what the projects are going to be from those high climate impact sectors, right? So so the, the labelling aspect is really important. What's happened if, in the last year or so is this scale-up of sustainability-linked and transition thinking. And that does become important because going back to this issue on what to do about high climate impact sectors like steel and cement that don't have clear decarbonisation pathways, or where it's trickier to know how they're going to decarbonize, the, the transition labeling helps investors understand how to compare between different companies. So this is really useful. Um, I think, you know, in terms of how they can, instruments can be scaled up, sovereigns play a really important role here. So I'm sure a lot of our audience will know that countries all have climate plans that they put forward in advance of the Paris Agreement in, in 2015, the so-called nationally determined contributions, and that all of these are being uh, looked at at the moment, and we're trying to raise ambition on them. Now, if governments can signal to investors that they are taking this climate plan seriously by issuing a sovereign green bond or a sovereign transition or sustainability-linked bond, to deliver on their climate commitment, that's a really powerful backdrop for privately held corporates to be able to also uh, it, be transparent about their financing as well. So that's really interesting. I have not come across uh, sovereign green bonds before. Um, have, have there been uh, actual issuance of, of countries of sovereign green bonds? So, in fact, there have actually been quite a few. There's 19 countries that have already issued a sovereign green bond, including across developed markets, France, Belgium, uh, the UK have recently announced they'll do something during 2021, but also across emerging markets, the likes of Egypt, Fiji, Nigeria, Indonesia, Chile. So there's a whole variety of countries that are coming forward and acknowledging that this is a really sensible way of thinking to link climate planning with investor appetite to get more involved in financing the solutions. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to go back to um, assessing climate risk, which you mentioned before as, a, as an important tool. Um, 
What do you foresee as the major effects of incorporating um, climate risk in financial institutions, lending and investing decisions? So there are a couple of things that credit officers are worried about. One is transition risk and the other one is physical risk. Now, and that sounds obvious, but the transition risk is going to come from policy decisions that tighten carbon constraints. So implementation of carbon pricing to uh, to drive behavioural change to low carbon solutions. Now, that will impact the ability of corporates to pay back their loans. Um, it will it, it, it will just change the economics of the projects that they're dealing with uh, or thinking about investing in. So we'll start to see more thinking around integrating um, the probability of default from a climate perspective. And that's really being driven by central banks asking uh, banks to start doing climate stress testing. So the policy framework is really useful to demonstrate how, uh, how fast or slow a country is moving with its climate goals. And that's, that's, that's a, a big thing to think about because from a transition perspective, if you're a high climate impact company, if climate policy is implemented slowly, then your transition risk is lower because you have time to adapt and change your business model. Whereas at the same time though, if policy isn't implemented fast enough, then the physical risks of climate change get higher and your risks of floods, the, your supply chain disruption that may come from weather events, and these physical factors then to start to take on a greater significance. So it's quite a complex way of, of thinking about risk. But at the same time, there are several things that companies and, and, and finance can do to mitigate that, which is uh, the, the stress testing, as I say, central banks are, are pushing us to, to do that, but also to really isolate the high risk companies themselves. Now, they're naturally going to be in the energy sector and to a certain degree in real estate where flood risk might be a problem. Uh, so I think we're getting better at, at capturing this, but there's still a lot of work to do in the space. Yes, thank you. Um... I, um, if we turn now to um, the uh, topic of aligning uh, portfolios with uh, net zero emissions, um, banks and, and asset managers have been talking a lot about uh, aligning their portfolios with, with zero emissions. Um, for example, every major American bank has recently promised to uh, stop funding Arctic drilling um, but it, there is still much much work to be done uh, in this regard. Um, and achieving net zero emissions by 2050 will require the financial sector to, to account for climate-related information um, in financial decision-making. Um, what, what do you see are um, changes in policies, tools and other mechanisms that uh, financial institutions need to make to ensure that financial flows are aligned um, with um, a pathway um, in, in consistent with, with Paris Agreement goals? Now, this really is a complicated one because there are different ways to think about this depending on which part of the financial system you sit in. And 
to just shine a little bit of a light on that for a second, if we think about asset owners that are stewards of a country's financial wealth and are trying to provide for their uh, for the prosperity of their people, so the, the sovereign asset owners, for example, a lot of the ownership of the wealth may well have come from fossil fuel activities. So now thinking about future prosperity, how do they adopt a mandate for their asset management, asset managers that are managing the money for them to to address environmental, social and governance issues and, and get portfolios aligned? Now, historically, that's been done by taking a stance on divestment, uh, whether 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 asset managers should, should divest from a certain activity or not. And it's that's very black and white, right? You either sell the shares or you hold the shares. So that capital markets piece has one consideration around aligning portfolios with net zero emissions. And then on the banking side, which is more about capital facilitation and financing. So you've got lending transactions, you may well be doing some capital origination for a company through a debt issuance, but a lot of your activities are going to be ongoing cash flow, a liquidity provision through credit, um, etc. So for banks and lending, the relationship is with a treasury function within a company, and it might be slightly more ongoing. So so that there's, there's less of a way to just walk away and, and and it's it's not sensible to just walk away in the same way that asset managers can divest so where your perspective is in the financial system is to a certain degree a driver about how well and how fast you can align your portfolio the other thing to consider is the size of the company so where clearly fortune 500 companies that are owned by large shareholders have been on the receiving end of engagement on climate issues for a long time so i've had a chance to respond to the these factors and have a chance to think about what the business shift is that they need to make in the mid-market size and for smaller enterprises and, and and indeed for consumers you know there's less thinking about how to deliver that net zero outcome and what they can do with their sustainability strategy to really make that shift so i think coming back to what the financial system is doing around aligning portfolios there is a lot of work in process around this so Asset owners, for example, have set up the Asset Owner Net Zero Alliance and asset managers are following suit. And and clearly the banks are also starting to work together more extensively on this alignment piece. What that really boils down to is three things which are consistent no matter where you are in the system. One is the status of your exposure to emissions. So when we're talking about financed emissions, how much is your capital responsible for, uh, for, for, for the climate impact? Well, how, how much responsibility does it have for a certain set of emissions? Now, we can measure that through absolute values or the financial exposure. The second piece is understanding what the future pathway of emissions looks like in order to align your capital to it. So this alignment piece. Now, that's tricky because nobody really knows what the future is going to look like. And in terms of emission scenarios, the assumptions, the assumptions that you put in in terms of 
future economic development, population growth, the speed of transition to renewable sources versus fossil fuel uh, usage, all of that is going to impact what the future emissions trajectory is like. So that's the other question that we're all thinking about. What scenarios should we use for the future to think about how we align our emissions? And then the third part is really this massive stakeholder engagement piece. It's the understanding of where you are today, how credible is your plan for where you want to get to in the future? And is that plan climate proof? Like, does that plan allow you to still be in business in the future? Does it allow you to have that resilience to climate impacts? Are you going to be generating a prosperous future? And are you going to be able to still employ the number of people that you have, contribute to society and do all of those things? So the alignment piece is really sort of at the at the center of, of what we're all trying to think about at the moment. Right. It's a complex um, issue with, with many parts to it. Um, you've been mentioning um, uh, throughout our conversation the role of transparency um, and in particular of disclosing climate-related information. Um, I wanted to delve a little bit into that topic. Um, In 2017, the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFD, uh, released a framework for organizations to develop more effective climate-related financial disclosures. Um, Today, around 60% of the world's 100 largest public companies support this uh, TCFD, Um, And their report um, says that um, although um, this this has been um, happening, the impact uh, of this disclosure remains remains low. Um, What what do you think disclosure uh, will provide us with? And will the impact of this disclosure, uh, what will be the impact of this disclosure on financial institutions' behavior? Essentially, the disclosure allows financial market participants to make better decisions for their own perspective on on how they want to deploy capital. And what I mean by that is, going back to this point of of asset owners versus uh, lending and and banks, an, an asset owner may well be able to take very strong views on what aspects of the economy it will support. For lending, there's a lot more of a facilitation piece going on, and it is much more about better pricing risk. So disclosure really services those two aspects at once, and that's why it's so important. The way that the financial system will really help this problem is if all market participants can better take decisions according to their own starting point and their own preferences. We're not doing that now, which is why we've got the climate externality in the first place. But the reason we've got the climate externality is this this lack of ability to be able to price carbon, which the disclosure really helps with. So the, the, this, the release of the recommendations actually really was groundbreaking for the way that the financial system can start to think about things differently. Now, it's no longer about why should we be looking at climate change really in this in the financial system. It's more about how to do it. And the TCFD provides a really good framework of recommendations 
that give the consistency that financial participants also need in terms of how they assess one company versus another. Mm-hmm. So it provides us with just a better toolkit to assess the, the risk, the reward profile, but also the alignment piece of, of how we deploy capital more effectively. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to um, hear your views on um, ESG and, and greenwashing. Um, some of the world's largest fund managers, uh, like BlackRock, for example, have been stating that sustainability and climate-integrated portfolios can provide better risk-adjusted returns. Um, now, others say that evidence that ESG outperforms traditional investment over long periods is, is inconclusive. Um, can we really do well by doing good? And perhaps more importantly, um, what else can, can we do to shift financial institutions away from greenwashing to uh, a true impact towards carbon reduction? This is a really imp- interesting point, which has been part of the narrative ever since I started looking at climate in particular, uh, which is now over 10 years ago, and, and since I've been in the market, which is now over 20 years ago. Um, but it, it, can we do well by doing good? Of course we can. We, we absolutely are dependent on our economy to serve our needs, but our economy is dependent on nature and humans um, and the health of humans uh, and the capacity of nature to provide resilience are coming to the fore in terms of how relevant they are, driven by the effects of, of, uh, of the pandemic, of course, bringing that to light. ESG outperformed last year. Depending on the time frame that you take, you you can uh, and the instruments that you take and the scores that you take, you can make an argument for what drivers, what what are the drivers of performance over different time periods. I think in terms of the greenwashing points, there is an element that the the the, the bolder uh, organisations that that want to uh, put forwards their climate ambition should be celebrated in the sense that this transparency point that I keep talking about is so critical to help us make better decisions. And if we stop, if we take that away, we we, we, we won't be able to pr- price risk properly. We won't be able to back the companies and individuals that really do have a visionary stance on climate change and therefore we won't move forward as fast as we otherwise could in terms of solving this problem so absolutely we can do well by doing good great we're, we're ending on a, on a positive note um, now to close our interview i'd like to ask you some rapid fire questions um, that we ask all our our guests um, you can answer them with just one or two words or take a wild guess Zero carbon Europe by 2050, myth or reality? 100% reality. The future of storage, batteries or power to gas? Both. What year will see the last internal combustion engine vehicle sold in Europe? 2025. What will the percentage of power generated by prosumers be in 2050? 
20%. The main challenge for utilities in the next decade is transparency of climate plans. And our final question, do you believe that the Paris Agreement goal of keeping the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees or even at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels will be attained? And if yes, by what date? Yes, absolutely. I think it's going to move faster than people anticipate and I think by 2040. Zoe, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Net Zero. You can catch new episodes, subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts.